HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with, I wish you were in studio because there will be movement. There, <laughs> there will be dance. There will be life. Adam H. Weinert, thank you for being in studio today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. And a huge thanks to Elizabeth Thacker Jones of Food Book Fair for the introduction. Absolutely. Because with, without her, I wouldn't know about had Sean, uh, or that Jacob's Pillow was actually for dance. I mean, not that I thought it was a sleeping device, but I've been out there in the Berkshires before and just thought it was literally a farm. So we'll, we'll get to that we'll get shortly. To that. But New York City, born and raised. That's right. What was your food life like here? Oh, my food life. I mean, my parents are definitely eat-to-live people, not live-to-eat Uh and it's been a it's been a learning curve, you know. Uh, <laughs> about two summers ago, I was invited to reperform some of the Ted Sean works at MoMA, uh, and Ted Sean had this great affinity for the outdoors. He, you know, at Jacob's Pillow, which had been a farm, they grew all their own food, and it was an important part of their training practice, but also their creative process. And so I thought I should, in remounting these works, also uh, have some farm experience under my belt. And it was hilarious what I didn't know about how food grows. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't a time where there were rooftop gardens abound and, you know, like CSAs. I mean, 20 years ago in in New York City, it was still kind of a food desert. Absolutely. Where did you 
get your food? Was it just a local supermarket? Did you go out to restaurants? Well, we were lucky enough that we lived near Fairway, which I still think is a great market. Um, so do we here at Heritage. <laughs> and, uh, but honestly, I think we ordered Japanese food, you know, five nights a week kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's... It's a funny existence here in New York, the, the you know, take-ins and the take-outs. Sure. But, you know, being a dancer, you know, growing up and thinking about your body and h- how it moves both both exteriorly and interiorly, mm-hmm. um, was there ever a focus on food such as diet, weight? I mean, was that a concern in your life? Sure. Well, you know, I grew up... Um studying classical ballet, uh, first at the Royal Ballet School in London and then at the School of American Ballet. And, you know, dancers' relationship to food is, you know, a whole body of research that I don't think we need to go into terribly It's a whole other show. It's a whole other show. Um, But even, you know, as as my education continued, uh, graduating from Juilliard, I, I do think it is something of a disservice how little we're taught about uh, how to power this vehicle, which is our you know, means of making a living, uh, and how to, you know, how nutrition can prevent injury and, you know, maybe even enhance creativity and things of that nature, which I think is pretty much uh, not ta- not addressed. Yeah, I mean, I know that opera singers don't drink a glass of milk or do dairy before a performance. Uh, are there no's for pre-dance? No's for pre-dance. I mean... You definitely don't want to eat anything two hours before you go on stage. Uh, that's supposed to be the right balance of you're still getting enough energy from the food that you've eaten, but it's not weighing you down or uh, making you tired. Yeah, it's not like the old wife's tale of 45 minutes before you swim kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, although I <laughs> I have been on stage where people were thrown up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, you say your parents were, you know, what was it? eat to live, not live to eat people, it's, it's, it's a similar thing, you know, when you're fueling your body for a performance, mm. you know, what do you need to create that energy, create that flow? So what is your normal meal before a performance? Normal meal. Well, you know, I think a good breakfast uh, ends up being the most important thing, no matter what else you do in the day. Um, they say that eggs and potatoes uh, make the best, you know, that's the right amount of protein and carb and other kinds of things. I like to work a little fruit in there also, yeah. um, some fresh veggies. But, um, you know, I, I think a big breakfast will, will set you up well. I think what gets tricky, especially when you're on the road touring, is, you know, you, so you haven't eaten two hours before the show. The show starts at 8, you're done at 10, and then you're starving, and you can't find food anywhere. Yeah. And that's when you, you know, wind up eating french fries at 2 in the morning or getting some really unhealthful habits. See, I know that you studied at Mark Morris, uh, and there really isn't much to eat, you know, in and around that area late night, like you say. So I, I think I just figured out a new profession myself and become like one of those little food vendors for post-ballet <laughs> or post-dance performances. And you can tell me what kind of food. <laughs> burrito, grilled cheese, etc. Right, a healthy salad with grains. Yeah. But let's get back to the dance side because mm-hmm. I know you went to the American Ballet, you went to Juilliard. Within all these schools, you still have this secondary interest uh, in food and eventually went to NYU mm-hmm. and took the food studies 
program. Why is that? Well, initially, it went back to this Ted Sean connection. Um, you know, he founded the very first school for modern dance and you know, incorporated agrarian and other labor practices into that training. And I, kind of, I became interested in how and why he did that. And then you look at other threads in dance history and like the Black, Black Mountain College, which was happened in the 50s and 60s and sort of spurred the second sort of big innovation in dance. That's when postmodern dance was born with Merce Cunningham and it inspired Trisha Brown and Yvonne Rayner and all these people. Um, they also grew their own food and uh, encouraged a macrobiotic type diet. Uh, and then today, uh, this conservatory in Brussels um, run by Anna Teresa de Kiersmacher, it's probably, it's basically the Juilliard of Europe, um, they serve a completely macrobiotic diet and give each student a plot of land on which to grow food. So I started to think, well, there must be something to this. You know, it keeps popping up. And, um, and in studying food studies, I was fortunate enough to take a class with Krishnendu Ray at NYU, um, who's absolutely brilliant. And I was also taking studies, uh, taking classes in performance studies, um, and the reading materials were almost the same. You know, it was different books, maybe, but the same authors. And there were many similar themes along the lines of sensuality and experience and temporality. And, you know, and dance and agriculture... They both work with sweat equity. You know, it's your body that you're putting out in the line. And that's sort of, I mean, I guess they have, there's technology nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> this is, it's not in the 1930s anymore. But, um, but there's a lot of connective tissue, I think, between the two bodies of research. I mean, we were talking about pickling right before the show. <laughs> and you, 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 you mentioned technology, but at the same time, there's this new cast of DIYers, uh, mm. almost homesteaders that are reverting back to their agrarian roots, you know, this legacy of, uh, you know, the old America where you reap the soil, you grow. Um, and, and with that, you know, they're, they're getting rid of modern conventions hmm. because of health, because of ideologies. Um, when Ted Sean started Jacob's Pillow or the farm that was formerly known as Jacob's Pillow, <laughs> um, was it still a working farm? It was. Yeah, and it was for for a time. You know, the, the it was founded in 19 between 1930 and 1932. So you have to think that growing your, their own food wasn't all idealism. It was also the depression. You know, if they didn't grow their own food, they might not have anything to eat. But um, but it carried on, I, I think, until his death in the 1970s, although uh, no longer. They've recently started encouraging local vendors to supply food for the cafeteria and whatnot, but they still have between two and 300 acres of land, and I don't see any reason why that they shouldn't put that land to use. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> it was an all-male troupe when it initially started. Is it still house a lot of all-male dancers? Uh, you know, it's still kind of in the air. That was one of Ted Sean's big contributions. Up until him, men 
dancing wasn't a man's profession, and that was something that he wanted to change. I think another thing that was important to him was figuring out you know, what was American about American dance, not to just inherit this ballet tradition from Europe, but actually to create something new that was specific to this time and place. And in that way, you know, I think turning to the environment and the landscape is a great place to begin because our surroundings do shape who we are. I know he was very interested in masculine movement. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't picture many more masculine things than actually working with your hands, you know, you know, in the dirt. Uh, have you ever worked on a farm? I did, yeah. I spent uh, two summers uh, gearing up for, for these performances. And, you know, I have to say, I, I did find it very empowering. I, I wasn't sure if it really would change anything about how I approached the choreographic material, but, you know, planting a seed and watching it grow and eating that thing, which emerged from the soil, uh, I think it does connect you to power and to place. And I remember when I first started working on the farm, um, I, I said to the field manager, uh, like, oh, you know, I thought that farm work was going to be really repetitive and tedious, but it's not. Every day we come back, we do something completely different. And he said to me, well, well it is really repetitive. It's just on an annual cycle. And it really changed my perspective on space and time. And space and time are very important to dance. That's what, you know, moving bodies through space and time, that is what dance is. And this was at Sylvester Manor? This was at Sylvester Manor. Let's talk a little bit about that specific farm a little bit more. On Shelter Island, uh, generations of generations of the same family owning that farm. Yes. What was it like to be in a land that had such ancestry as well? Hmm. Right. So Bennett Knezny, who runs that farm now he's the 13th generation of that family to reside on that property uh he's in the last 10 years he's turned it into a educational farm nonprofit. um and one thing that was uncanny about winding up at that farm was that bennett has a whole body of research in the work song and He's, I think he's created the very first online database to collect and archive work songs, um, but also to investigate how they can synchronize movement and enhance productivity, but also create joy and community. And so it really was the ideal place to sort of workshop some of my ideas around the connections between performance and agriculture. See, and when we were talking about that kind of synchronicity, you know, uh, of movement, it made me think of my years in the kitchen. Huh. You know, and everyone always kind of equates it to most who haven't professionally danced as some kind of ballet, as some kind of, hmm. you know, knowing where that other person is and being able to move gracefully within a small space. Um, so, I mean, I've always assumed those two things were connected. Right. Uh, but I've never actually experienced that. Yeah. And kitchens, too, you have to work together as a team. And, you know, dance is a very social art form. You can't do it by yourself. You can't practice by yourself. You can't perform it by yourself. Um, so I think that they are, there's a lot of mutual regard there. 
And you saw this when you worked in New Hampshire, <laughs> manager at some restaurant over there. That's right. It was a long time ago. Uh, it wasn't gourmet food we were serving. But uh, yes, I, I worked on an island. If you walk around it twice, it's a mile. So it really is its own little ecosystem. Um, and <laughs> they used to keep goats on the island. And I've also been trying to convince them to bring goats back to Star Island. <laughs> but we'll see how that yeah. how that works out. See, I like how you kind of like nudge nudge everybody. <laughs> Let's bring chickens back to Hudson, New York. Absolutely. You know, why why not chickens in Hudson, New York? If you can keep them in Brooklyn, why not Hudson? And on that, we're going to take a quick break. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again today with Adam H. Weinert. Hmm. I, I have to use the H because my middle name, Harlan's my middle name, and sometimes those things are important. Yes, absolutely. Back to Hudson, New York, and your fight to get chickens back in that community. <laughs> I mean, you just recently relocated up there. Um, was it partially a move to kind of be akin to the idea of Jacob's Pillow of, of, you know, Ted Sean's agrarian dance studio. Sure. You know, it is very close to Jacob's Pillow. And I've spent the last four or five summers up there uh, and really enjoyed the artistic community and the agricultural community and how they overlap. Uh, and we decided to make the switch. Um, and, I, and I have to say, I, I really enjoy visiting New York City even more than I enjoyed living there, I think. Yeah, I, I like being a tourist sometimes, but it takes years of living here to like do the touristy stuff. Sure. Sometimes you have to like leave and then come back and be like, okay, I can go on you know, the Staten Island Ferry right. or Empire State Building. <laughs> or bring a friend from out of town as your beard, yeah, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
but living up in Hudson, you know, taking yourself out of this urban community of, of New York City, uh, how has that lifestyle informed your dance? I, mm. I know you've been pickling a bit. Sure. Call yourself a recreational pickler. <laughs> but are, are those modes and methods of living in Hudson or living on a farm or cooking things, do they come through on stage? Well, I, I'm new up there. Uh, it hasn't been hasn't been very long. You yet. haven't homesteaded yet, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but that is uh, that's the goal. Um, and you know, we're lucky enough. Uh, my husband and I, you know, Jacob's Pillow is 30 minutes away. Um, I'll be performing there later this summer, and he has shows at Bard Summerscape and at Tanglewood. So, you know, we can keep it very local and still have a rich uh, cultural life. But the idea of having space, uh, that was something that was becoming really difficult for me in, in New York City, it was just you know, not, not having the space to move, to dance around. or You, know, you can rent a studio, but that becomes so pressurized because you know, it's X number of dollars an hour, and getting anybody in that room with you is, you know, there's a whole choreography of scheduling that yeah. we were talking about <laughs> earlier, that I'm really looking forward to um, what it'll do to my creative practice to have space and time. Yeah, because, I mean, I've seen some of your past performances, videos, uh, and the way you incorporate the urban land- landscape is, mm. is, is fascinating. So it's just going to be interesting to see how, you know, that informs you know future movement sure have you ever you know been either a dancer or choreographer of a piece about farming specifically well you know i it's there's a it's sort of a work in progress at this point you know after remounting these ted sean solos i've been doing a lot of work trying to figure out what it would be like to reimagine those works today, uh, you know, if that's even possible. And, and that's taken me to some funny places, including all this agricultural research I've been doing, but also into digital technology, because one of the reasons that Ted Sean wanted to engage with farm and other labor practices is because in the 1930s, most Americans held laboring jobs, and he wanted to create a movement vocabulary that connected with ordinary people. But today, we don't have that same connection to labor as we once did. Um, you know, labor means sitting in front of your laptop or, you know, fiddling away on your phone for a lot of people. So that's brought me to explore how to implicate technology in the experience of these dance performances. And so one thing that I've done is I created a, a digital installation at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, which uses an augmented reality platform. So basically, you with your smartphone can walk through the galleries of MoMA and through your phone see me performing in those galleries uh, as I did in the fall of uh, 2013. Like holograms. Like holograms. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, through the medium of your phone, which there are a couple of cheeky things about it, which I like. Um, you know, one is that, as it turns out, Ted Sean made a gift of his life's work to the museum in the 1950s, but that the museum later gave away these works to the New York Public Library. Uh, I found out that 
if he had been considered an artist, they wouldn't have been allowed to do that because the rules of deaccession in that museum are such that you can't just give away the work of a living artist. Um, but I guess since he was just a dancer, they thought it was fine. To, just a dancer. Just a dancer. Yeah. And so this is a way for me to put this material back in the museum where he intended it to be. Um, the other cheeky thing is that, you know, even when I was giving the initial live performances at MoMA, everyone was watching me through their phone anyway because they're texting or tweeting or photographing the spectacle. So, you know, since it already is the interface of choice, why not engage with that uh, and have it actually be the medium through which this installation is experienced. Are you using that same technology for the Downtown Dance Festival in Battery Park? No, that'll be uh, physical, sweaty dancing. Yeah, <laughs> August 17th, so extra sweaty at that time of year. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. what are you performing then? Well, that'll be... I'm performing the Ted Sean solos, and then my colleague, Logan Kruger, will be performing some Doris Humphrey solos, and then together we're going to perform a Jose Limon duet. So it's sort of this one branch of dance history, because... Doris Humphrey attended the school that Ted Sean founded, and then later uh, Jose Limon was influenced by that work. So it, it, it ties together nicely, and I think it's a part of dance history that uh, is underexplored. Yeah, I mean, I'm not asking you to summarize that whole arc of history <laughs> in the next two minutes, but how has it changed from Ted Sean to now? Hmm. Well, I think that it started to incorporate... breath. That's actually the best way that I can put it. Uh, it's a lot about finding weight in the body and um, sort of listening more to to the body's impulses rather than creating shapes, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, I was jokingly going to ask you to uh, dance peristalsis for me today. <laughs> you know, because of all these... I think there are so many interesting motions within inside the body hmm. that, uh, you know, actually are expressed through exterior movements as well. You know, how the heart pumps right. and then, you know, forces blood throughout the body and that, you know, stimulates certain parts and flushes others. And I always thought it was interesting that, you know, that isn't as exposed... Um, on the exterior of a human body. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, if we were to remain absolutely still, you know, we would fall over. There are constant little adjustments happening uh, all over our bodies to, you know, just to get us, keep us upright. Yeah. And August 20th at Jacob's Pillow, what performance is happening there? That'll be the same program as, as at Battery Park. Um, I, I'm doing a residency at the Hudson Opera House for the entire month of August, where we will be sort of workshopping ideas of, you know, kind of reimagining these works for the 21st century. So, you know, it, Ted Sean's movement was was very much about uh, male sexuality and labor and environment. And those things have changed so much in the last 80 years. So trying to imagine what it would be like to take those themes and create uh, create a score for today. Yeah. So I think it's also interesting to see those parallels with how food changed. Hmm. Because you, you talk about Ted Sean, you know, and this, this working farm, and I wonder what kind of food they ate, you know, what, what ethnicities were you know, inflected in that. And then 
you're pretty well versed in macrobiotics. You, you've had a couple chef friends such as who teach you. Right, yeah. Adria Lee, um, Kitchen Leeway, Blogspot. She's been incredible. Um, I, she doesn't have a cookbook officially yet. She gave me and my husband one for our wedding, which was her first ever cookbook, uh, which we were very touched by. But, um, yeah, food as a, as a healing force uh, has been a very powerful concept for me this, this, this last year, you know, and especially since I recently learned that the average dancer retires at 29 and a half. And, you know, maybe there's something we can do about yeah. that. Uh, for what specific reasons? Well, you know, the, the statistics weren't that detailed. Um, I'm sure injury is a big part of it. Burnout is probably another. Um, you know, it's, it's not easy to make a living in dance. Well, I mean, talk to me about those healing forces. Hmm. Are they specific foods? Are they meals? Or are they just methods of cooking? Methods of cooking and, and growing. You know, I have some experience with biodynamics as well. Um, and, you know, I met this woman, KK, who has a farm on the North Fork, and she she has practices of walking through her fields barefoot every morning uh, so that the soil will absorb her toxins and <laughs> gets a little out there sometimes, but that the plants will learn to how to labor to help her achieve her life goals, just as she is laboring to help them achieve their life goals. And, you know, it, it's, sometimes it gets a little out there, but why not? I don't think it's... Well, I mean, it's, it's much bigger or more prevalent, I think, in wine, mm. in the discussion of wine. You know, getting a cow's horn, bull's horn, or whatever, putting a whole bunch of poop in it and burying it at some certain phase of the moon. But it's the same idea of, you know, like planting cover crop because it's nitrogen-rich or... Sure. Taking supplements because you're deficient of vitamin D. Yeah. So why couldn't that work at its most base level? Yeah. And honestly, you know, I'm a modern dancer. I do 80% of my work barefoot. And I, I'd never really contemplated what it meant to be barefoot or why. This is the first time I'd had someone uh, articulate the rationale behind, you know, walking through soil barefoot. And I think it's an experience... Uh, you know, more dancers than just me should uh, should experience. And when can I expect you to do your first barefoot performance in a dirt field? <laughs> well, um, uh, the, the performances at Jacob's Pillow will be outdoors. Um, so August 20th at in the Inside Out stage at Excellent. Jacob's Pillow. Well, if you're up in the Berkshires or are looking for something really wonderful to watch and <laughs> connect yourself back to the land please go see adam h weiner at jacob's pillow uh, in battery park again august 17th for the downtown dance festival and just log on to the website i'm sure there's plenty more coming down the pipe and so excited to have you on today <laughs> and i will i promise somebody else that you know that i will attend a dance class soon and i've also <laughs> promised this to my wife so well, you should yeah great Excellent. Thank you again for being on. You've been Thank listening you to the me. food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. 
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.